to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. So here's the week's biggest stories in a nutshell. Panic buying in the midst of a growing pandemic, leaving shelves bare, and a population still wondering what to do. And although the numbers are growing and they do justify caution, they don't justify panic, at least not here in the United States. But in Italy, the situation is different and the entire country has been locked down completely. And worldwide, by March 10th, the World Health Organization reported that COVID-19 deaths had risen to above 4,000 worldwide, with more than 116,000 people infected. By the time you hear this show, the numbers will no doubt be higher and still rising. And then there is the oil war between Saudi Arabia and Russia and panic selling around the world. Between the virus and the oil war, there was a massive financial earthquake that rocked the major stock markets and put them in freefall. And then some of our troops are already coming home from Afghanistan following our historic treaty with the Taliban. But there's a big question about whether it was a good deal or a smart deal. And then there are the Democrats rushing to rally around the Biden campaign as new tremors and new faux pas threaten to sink his boat again. And that's only the beginning. What a week. So let's get right to it. There was a lot of panic buying this week and a lot of panic selling. The buying was in the supermarkets and the discount stores like BJ's and Costco Big bulk items like paper towels, toilet paper, hand sanitizer, Clorox, anything that could clean and sanitize and maybe keep COVID-19 at bay. Okay, I get it. I've been telling you myself over the last few weeks that the virus is something to be concerned about. Because what we don't know about it is significant. And as the numbers of infected people rise around the world, that's a bit scary. But I also said that while we need to take precautions, we should also continue to live our lives sensibly and, most important, not panic. In fact, here's what I said last week. I'm quoting myself now. It's mostly common sense, my friends, and a bit of situational awareness. That means being aware of what's going on around you. For example, if you're in a store and you see a person sniffling or coughing near you, move. Get away from him and be somewhere else. The rule of thumb as put out by the government is stay six feet away from anyone you suspect has symptoms of the virus. That means coughing, sneezing, sniffling, and so forth. Keep your distance, unquote. And finally, quote again, don't panic. Don't be afraid. Keep living your life and be glad you're in America. We have options here, and the possibility of making a potentially bad situation feel a whole lot better, unquote. And that is still the main point. Don't panic. Think of it this way. In this country, there are over 330 million people. 
And the World Health Organization has estimated that worldwide, only 3.4% of the people who have been infected actually get sick enough to die. That means that the people who get sick, and so far WHO, WHO, the World Health Organization, reports that 105,000 people have contracted the virus. I might argue that number with them because we really don't know the numbers in China. But that's not even the point. Let's say, because it's true, that there are 330 million people in the United States. And as of March 9th, 2020, there are 419 cases of COVID-19 here. And there were 19 deaths from the virus, most of which were among elderly or people whose health was otherwise compromised with cancer or other illnesses, for example. Now, getting back to the cases of infection, in a population of 330 million people and an infection rate of 419 people, that means that 329,999,581 people have not been infected with the virus in this country. So what do you suppose are your chances of avoiding it? I'd say they're pretty darn good. Does that help put it in perspective? That doesn't mean you shouldn't take precautions that the CDC and the Trump administration are recommending. And in order to raise those chances of avoiding it, you can do a few things like wash your hands thoroughly and frequently. Don't touch your face because that is the easiest way to contract the virus if you have been exposed. That's because the virus enters the body most easily through the eyes, nose, and mouth, and it can live on hard surfaces for up to nine days. So if you have touched something with your hands that was touched by someone with the infection, and then you rub your eyes, well, you get the picture. That's pretty straightforward. So don't hang around people who are coughing and sneezing. Remember the six-foot rule. Keep your distance. And most of all, don't panic. Go to the store and buy what you think you will need to hang around at home for a while. You know, canned food, soups, pasta, dry cereal, things that come in boxes and cans, things that will make you happy if you have to stay in for a while. But you don't have to buy out the store. And remember, those 329999000 581 people who did not get the virus. So this first story is about panic buying. And the next one is about panic selling. All last week, which was the first week in March 2020, the stock market was on a downward trajectory. And it wasn't just here. It was all around the world. Worries about COVID-19 apparently had investors spooked, and they were selling their stocks little by little or a lot by a lot. In one day, the Dow Jones index went down 1,000 points. On another day, it went down 800 points. And on only one day that week did it go up. Then, over the weekend, a second worry hit the market. It was over oil. An oil price war between Saudi Arabia and Russia 
exploded over the weekend when Russia refused the Saudi request to hold back on its oil in order to raise oil prices worldwide, which is what Saudi Arabia wanted and Russia refused. So the Saudis opened up the taps of their own oil and flooded the markets. And the price of oil dropped from above $50 a barrel to below $32. So that and the worry about COVID-19 was just what we needed to send the market into shock. In the first half hour, the market dropped like a stone and then recovered a bit and then fell some more. By the end of Monday, the Dow had fallen more than 2,000 points in one day. The day was a disaster for the financial world. But we live in interesting times because this is not a normal situation for either the stock markets or the oil markets. And as far as the financial markets are concerned, they are usually impacted by financial issues, bank failures, interest rates, employment statistics, and other financial indicators. And the recovery can usually be predicted more or less accurately based on history. But this dramatic downturn in markets all around the world has been caused by a health crisis, a pandemic unlike anything we have seen before, with responses never seen before. So it really has no history to fall back on. In Italy, for example, the number of cases of infected people soared by 25% by March 9th to 9,172 in a country whose population is 60 million people. And the number of reported deaths that has occurred as of March 10th had risen to 463 from 366. So the entire country was in crisis. And as a result, the government declared that the entire country would be closed for business. Borders shut, schools and universities closed nationwide, all public events canceled, and no one will be allowed to travel within the country without a business or health-related reason until at least April 3rd. Within minutes of the announcement, supermarkets and small neighborhood shops throughout Italy saw a surge of panic buying. Long lines of people were seen standing outside of shops while the shelves inside were emptied by the people who were already there. And there were reports about the looting of critical medical supplies. All this in the face of growing chaos throughout Italy. And the hospitals also were being overwhelmed. One Italian doctor said that his hospital was being hit by a tsunami of patients. Meanwhile, people under quarantine can face fines and up to three months in prison for breaking quarantine rules. And by the way, in the prison, there are riots now because the prisoners are protesting the fact that their families cannot come and visit them during this quarantine. Nevertheless, the government is trying to help the people that it is putting under so much pressure. During the time when people can't leave their homes because of the quarantine, mortgages and other debts will have a moratorium until the quarantine can be lifted. So in order to assist those who will be hurt by these very severe restrictions, 
the government-approved spending of 7.5 billion euros, which equals about $8.5 billion, to help cushion the economic impact of these closures. And this number, 7.5 billion euros, may be increased to 10 billion euros if necessary. Now, by contrast, the state of Israel has a population of only 9 million and is also under lockdown. 58 people there are now confirmed to be infected with the virus. And the list of supermarkets and synagogues and cafes and other places they have frequented grows longer every day. These are all places where they might have infected others. And in theory, their local travel before they became symptomatic, but while they could still transmit the disease, could have exposed thousands to the virus. As a result of these new restrictions and the closing of the borders, only returning travelers with Israeli passports can now come into Israel, and they must enter a 14-day self-quarantine period upon their return. Non-Israelis cannot enter the country at all until the closure is lifted. And coming back to the United States, in New York State, Governor Cuomo has sent the National Guard to the New York City suburb of New Rochelle, which has become the epicenter of America's largest cluster of COVID-19. So schools, synagogues and churches, and all places where large gatherings take place within a one-mile radius of New Rochelle will be closed for at least two weeks. According to the governor, the city has had an outbreak of 108 cases as of March 10th, and that's out of 173 cases statewide. New York City, which has 100 times the population of New Rochelle, has only 36 cases so far. And so it goes. The numbers are slowly growing across the country, and there is not a cure, not yet, or a vaccine. So what can we reasonably expect? Dr. Marty McCary is chief of the Johns Hopkins Islet Transplant Center and a clinical lead at the Johns Hopkins Sibley Innovation Hub. He is also Professor of Health Policy and Management at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. In an interview with CNBC this past week, he said what I think is the most realistic forecast that we've gotten from government since this all began. It may actually be our worst-case scenario, but it is one that we can manage if we're smart and careful. He said, quote, What happened in Wuhan could happen here. Why do we think otherwise? Viruses don't care about politics and they don't care about location. We must brace for a three-month problem. So my friends, in the world according to Dr. Makari, the virus is likely to continue spreading across the country for the next few months at least. Well, I don't agree with Dr. Makari completely. What happened in Wuhan happened because the virus was released there and was allowed to spread without any efforts on the part of the government to contain it. In fact, people were actually punished for revealing to their friends and colleagues that such a virus was spreading and that people were getting sick and because they were not being treated, they were dying from it. That isn't the case here in the United States. Our medical infrastructure is prepared for it at its current level, 
and will continue to prepare for a much larger epidemic, which we will then have a much better chance of getting through than the people of Wuhan ever did, who, particularly early on, really didn't have a chance. So brace for the next three months because the numbers are likely to continue to rise and the virus to spread. But there is also hope that in a lab somewhere, a cure and a vaccine will be found that can stop the spread of this deadly virus. And in the meantime, there are many ways that we can protect ourselves. I went over some of the most important ones last week in some detail. But here is a short version. The keys to riding out the storm are to stay smart, keep your distance when you go out, which also means staying clear of crowds, wash your hands thoroughly and frequently, don't touch your face any more than absolutely necessary, don't shake hands, and if you feel comfortable wearing surgical gloves to protect your hands when you go out, then do that. And above all, stay cool and don't panic. We'll get through this. Okay, time for a short break, but I'll be right back with lots more news to talk about. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shining sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. To unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Now, in the last section, I talked a little bit about the oil war. And I think we need to do a little bit more with that and talk a little bit more because we don't really know where it's going. What can we expect in that situation? Well, as long as the battle between the Saudis and the Russians is going on, and as long as the Saudis are flooding the world with cheap oil, energy producers around the world are going to be suffering from low prices. It's not just oil producers in the United States who are going to be unhappy, but oil producers everywhere are going to be suffering because they cannot compete at such low levels. And Russia is going to be suffering because although it started this confrontation and refused to cooperate with their so-called partner, Saudi Arabia, in fact, they opened a can of worms which has caused Saudi Arabia to fight back. And the way they fought back was to lower the price of oil to such an extent that Russia is not going to be able to compete either. So here's what happened since then. The president, President Trump, had a conversation with Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And what we have to see next is if that resulted in any major change. Now, it might be that by the time you hear this broadcast, we will know more. But for the time being, we're waiting. Now, we are Saudi Arabia's ally, and therefore, we should have some kind of accommodation from them to protect our oil producers. In fact, the move of Saudi Arabia to flood the market hurt our oil producers in this country badly because they can't compete. A company that does fracking 
needs to have a market price for their oil of about $50 a barrel. But the oil price right now is 30 something. And that's going to get very, very painful very, very fast to these companies and may put many of them out of business. So the president's conversation with the Saudi Arabia's crown prince is very important. And we hope that the outcome will be a good one for everybody concerned and certainly for our own oil producers here in the United States. In the end, I have no doubt that the battle will eventually resolve itself. And sooner rather than later, they usually do. And when they do, then the oil markets will stabilize eventually. Okay, now here's a story about another promise kept. During his presidential campaign in 2016, Trump promised to end the endless wars. Our war in Afghanistan began after 9-11, and there seemed to be no end to it. It's been almost 20 years. In the beginning, it was fought badly by the armchair commanders in Washington. They sent columns of tanks and mobile units into the rugged mountains of Afghanistan, where they were easy targets for the Taliban, and where teams of special operators would have been much more appropriate and much more effective. They sent our soldiers into the field to fight against terrorists with insufficient ammunition and inappropriate rules of engagement. 2,378 American personnel died in this war. It was a price far too high to pay for a war we could not win. We went in to get Osama bin Laden late in August 2007 when we had intelligence that he was hiding in the mountains in Tora Bora. But we failed, and although our troops killed dozens of Al-Qaeda and Taliban members, they did not find either Osama bin Laden or Ayman al-Zawahiri, his second-in-command. They escaped through a maze of caves and tunnels and took a new refuge in neighboring Pakistan, in the mountains there. Our mission in Afghanistan was to ensure that it never again became a haven for terrorists as it had been for bin Laden and al-Qaeda. But this was a war we could not win. It wasn't a conventional war, but we tried to win it in a conventional way, using conventional methods. It was a war we could not win because Afghanistan is not a country as we would define it, but rather the home to a collection of tribes where every member's first allegiance is to his tribe, not to his country. And it was a war we could not win because the culture there is one we do not understand. It's based on primitive concepts that we do not understand, where cruelty is an integral part of the culture, where women are property, and independence, even elementary education for women, is forbidden under tribal law. The Taliban enforces these laws and they are the ones with whom we just signed a peace agreement. There was a brief period during the 20th century when the Afghan women 
slowly gained their independence. They helped to write their country's constitution in 1964. They served in parliament and went to university. They became 40% of the doctors and 70% of the teachers. But then the Taliban came back and one by one these rights all disappeared and so did the women. They put on their pale blue burqas and they disappeared into the silence of the background, subject to their fathers, their brothers, their husbands, and free to do nothing on their own. No education, no job, no makeup, in a country where if you disobey your brother, your father, your husband, or even the inadvertent uncovering of a wrist or an ankle, you can be killed simply because you are a woman and they can. This is the Afghanistan that we leave behind. After all our efforts to teach them the joys of Western freedom, we leave them in the dark ages of a tribal culture that will, like the jungle creeping back to take over the abandoned village, revert to its primitive tribalism, almost as if we had never been there. Our first troops have begun to leave Afghanistan and are now on their way home. Following the signing of the agreement with the Taliban, hundreds of troops are leaving and they will not be replaced. The first part of the plan calls for about 8,600 to leave and the remaining 13,000 will all have left the country within the next 14 months. That's according to the agreement. President Trump has kept his promise to end this endless war. Our losses were far too costly and it should have ended many years and many lives ago. But we signed a deal with the Taliban, tribal tyrants and terrorists who have no loyalty except to their own, who will betray our trust in a heartbeat, as they did only days after they signed the agreement, which had the improbably long title of Agreement for Bringing Peace to Afghanistan Between the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, which is not recognized by the United States as a state and is known as the Taliban, and the United States of America, February 29, 2020. The agreement, quote, guarantees for a complete withdrawal of foreign forces and timeline in the presence of international witnesses, and guarantees and the announcement in the presence of international witnesses that Afghan soil will not be used against the security of the United States and its allies, unquote. That means that the Taliban will not attack the United States or its allies on Afghan soil. That's pretty clear. In return, the United States promised to secure the release of some 5,000 Taliban prisoners now being held in Afghan jails. The deal was signed in Doha on February 29th. But as I said, the Taliban are not to be trusted because they don't play by our rules. 
On March 3rd alone, they carried out 43 strikes against the Afghan National Defense and Security Forces, or ANSIF, at their checkpoint in Helmand. The Taliban claimed to be fighting to free Afghanistan from international forces, but they attacked Afghani forces. The February 29th agreement provides a conditions-based path to withdrawal, but it took only four days for the Taliban to break their side of the agreement. As we should have known, they would. I could have told them. We responded with an airstrike on March 4th against the Taliban fighters in Helmand, who were actively attacking the Afghani checkpoint. Quote, This was a defensive strike to disrupt the attack. This was our first strike against the Taliban in 11 days. Unquote. The United States had agreed to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan after nearly 20 years of war before the chaos of the attack and the counterattack took place. Washington said it had launched the airstrikes in response to a, quote, needless, unquote, attack by the Taliban. A spokesman for the U.S. forces Afghanistan said on Twitter, quote, the U.S. conducted an airstrike on March 4th against Taliban fighters in Nar-e-Siraj, Helmand, who were actively attacking an ANSIF checkpoint. This endless war needs to end, regardless of how the Taliban break their word, which was never worth anything in the first place. Eighteen months of negotiations ended within four days. So what is our next move? Well, it seems that our soldiers are moving out anyway, and I, for one, think it's about time. The sad truth is that Afghanistan is not going to be able to stop the Taliban from fighting to destroy what has been built with the blood of so many good men and women. At some point, one has to ask, is it really worth it? Now, here is a short story about one of America's favorite beverages, Coca-Cola. Did you know that one of the ingredients in its diet drinks is an artificial sweetener that comes from China? And now, because of the coronavirus, COVID-19, the supply chain has been broken. So the company released a report last week in which it explained the problem to its customers. And here's the report. It said, well, here's a piece of it. It said, quote, Our supply chain for non-nutritive sweeteners and certain other ingredients for our products includes suppliers in China. As a result of the outbreak of the novel coronavirus COVID-19, beginning in January 2020, our suppliers in China have experienced some delays in the production and export of these ingredients. I'll bet they did. That's an aside. That's just me commenting. Going back to the text, quote, we have initiated contingency supply plans and do not foresee a short-term impact due to these delays. However, we may see tighter supplies of some of these ingredients in the long term should production or export operations in China deteriorate, unquote. Another statement released to their investors addressed the issues at hand in a different way. 
The statement read, quote, The company's deepest sympathies go out to those who have been impacted by COVID-19. The company is carefully following all government guidelines and taking precautionary steps to do what it can to prevent the further spread of the virus. The company is also donating to organizations that are working diligently to support patients and contain the virus, unquote. The report went on to say, quote, the safety and health of the company's associates remain a high priority. The company has implemented precautionary measures to protect employees in China, which includes providing face masks and hand sanitizers, installing temperature screening in offices and manufacturing facilities, and setting up health monitoring mechanisms across the Coca-Cola system in China. Unquote. So the company is trying to be transparent to both its customers and its investors, and it also wants its investors to know that it has a very soft corporate heart. But the situation will be dire if it cannot find a replacement for its current suppliers in China, who are no doubt no longer working, or if they are, certainly not exporting. But you know, there is another short little story that fits right in here, and it relates to climate change, satellite imagery, and clean air. And this is the story. Because of the virus and the fact that even after the government ordered people back to work, many refused to go. Many of the factories, in fact, most of the factories throughout China are lying idle. They're not working. Their furnaces are cold. So the skies over China are clear for the first time in decades because the coal furnaces are no longer belching out nitrogen dioxide into the air. AOC would be thrilled. Satellite photographs show the country with amazing clarity for the first time. And the Chinese people only wear masks now to prevent them from contracting COVID-19, and not because of the terrible air pollution that has caused countless breathing difficulties and lung diseases in China for decades. So who would have thought that in this awful winter of the coronavirus, the COVID-19, there would be something in it that would please the promoters and supporters of climate change? that the greatest polluter of all because of the COVID-19 has stopped producing all of the tons of nitrogen dioxide into the air. And the air over China, the world's worst polluter, is clean. It's clean. You can actually see details of the Chinese landscape from space. The people wouldn't have to wear masks if it weren't for the virus. Isn't that something? Well, I'm going to take a short break now, again. But when I come back, we really do need to talk about the presidential primaries. Because they're happening right now. And Joe Biden is going to make some of his favorite gaffes. And Bernie Sanders is going to be right there to attack him wherever he can. Good stuff. And so I'm going to talk about that. And then, of course, I have to leave time for the special part of my program. 
You just can't make this stuff up. So don't go away. I'll be right back. Did you know the average person spends 26 years of their life sleeping? The real troubling statistic is that we spend seven years of our life trying to get to sleep, struggling with racing minds, tossing and turning. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Sleep is proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance. Until now, most sleep supplements haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM Sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 Talk Radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. Now, I received an email the other day with the heading, quote, this is vile, unquote. And the sender was, quote, remove Omar, unquote. Well, that was strange. But then when I looked a little further, I found out that it was a fundraising letter from a pro-Trump candidate for Congress. And the thrust of her letter was a reference to a tweet that had been posted by a Democrat politician a Denver councilwoman named Candy DeBaca, who is supported by, no surprise, the AOC Omar squad. Now, this woman, Candy DeBaca, she posted this supposedly on her government Twitter account, quote, For the record, if I do get the coronavirus, I'm attending every MAGA rally I can. Unquote. And I believe that Ilhan Omar retweeted that 
although I think it was pulled down. It's not, I couldn't find it when I looked for it today. The idea, I guess, is that if she gets the virus and goes to MAGA rallies, she will infect everyone she meets, and she'll shake hands and rub against people and do those stupid things that people do to get attention. And all those nasty Republicans who all deserve to get sick and die will get sick and die. That is what she seems to be saying. She is, as I said, a councilwoman in Denver, a Democrat, whose hatred for the Republicans is so great that she threatens to kill as many as she can by infecting them with COVID-19. She is so consumed by her hatred that she is ready to die if she can take as many Republicans with her as possible. You know, that sounds like jihad. Suicide terrorism. This is sick, my friends. It sounds like a terrorist threat. It is at the extreme of things that we have been talking about for a while. How civil discourse on real issues has been replaced by hate speech, filled with venom, with no room for adult discussion. This is real. She's a politician. She represents people in Denver. And she's talking about carrying an infection into a massive rally. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. And then there's the one about Joe Biden, candidate for president of the United States, who just this week had the opportunity to meet with a large group of auto workers at the Fiat Chrysler auto plant in Detroit on the day of the Michigan primary. One man asked him about gun control and accused Biden of wanting to take away his Second Amendment rights. Biden lashed out at this prospective voter and said, quote, you're full of expletive, unquote. And he later called the man a horse's rear end. Only, of course, he didn't say it quite that way. Remember, this is a guy, Joe Biden, Sleepy Joe, who is stumping for votes just before an election. And he's swearing at a potential voter. He also said to this guy, quote, no one needs an AR-14, which is true because the gun in question is an AR-15. Biden also questioned why anyone needs 100 rounds, which of course an AR-15 doesn't hold. Neither does the AR-14, whatever that is. And by the way, this isn't the first time that Sleepy Joe got angry with a potential voter. In early February, he called a man attending one of his rallies in Iowa a liar. I don't think he got his vote either. Well, Hollywood actress Alyssa Milano has thrown her support behind Biden today. She said she was impressed by the tough conversation he had about gun control in Michigan. <laughs> I don't know. Tough conversation. He was screaming. And uh, he was also swearing. So, I don't know. She used a few choice words herself to underscore her support. And she went on to praise his, quote, intelligence, kindness, and decency, unquote. He sure had a funny way of showing it today. I think Joe's continuing accumulation of gaffes 
are not going to work well for him when he gets on the stage with a real president. You just can't make this stuff up. Now, to be fair, I have to tell you that I think Joe Biden is having a difficult time hiding his senior moments, and that, my friends, is not funny. It's sad. At some point during this campaign, he is likely to be deeply humiliated. And I will rest the blame for this squarely at the door of the DNC, who wanted so much to defeat Bernie Sanders that they promoted a failing old man to run for the most demanding job in the world. This will be an interesting campaign, but I'm going to have trouble laughing. I was going to take a serious look at the primaries now, and I will in a bit, but I think I want to go back to another subject first, because news just came out that the number of COVID-19 cases in the United States hit 1,000 on Tuesday night, March 10th, and that means several things. There's going to be more panic in the stores, a shortage of just about everything we need, and conflicting answers to our most basic and important questions. This situation is confusing, and it's difficult to wrap our heads around it. But don't feel embarrassed if you're puzzled. There has never been a situation like this before. It's not that we haven't had pandemics before. Indeed, we have. The last one was in 2002, and they called it SARS, and it killed 774 people in the U.S., and flu, of course, kills hundreds of people every year. And as many as 200,000 are hospitalized for flu-related complications every year. But of course, we have the flu vaccine, which helps us both by offering some protection against the flu, and it also gives us some peace of mind. But this is different. In the first place, so-called experts are giving out different answers to relatively simple questions. And that's partly because if they're in positions of influence and authority, they may want to keep from alarming us. And they may also disagree with each other. And finally, they also just may not know the answer. But for many people, this situation is alarming. And when we don't get the answers we can understand, it is also frightening. And there's something else as well. If this is, as I have maintained, an engineered virus fresh from the biohazard laboratory in Wuhan, we don't know exactly what we're dealing with. We don't know, for example, if you get it and are cured, can you get it again? And we don't know if it will die down in the spring, like the flu, or if it will continue to spread during the summer. And we don't know why some people only get a little sick and other people get so sick that they have to be hospitalized and sometimes they die. And we don't know why it seems to leave small children alone for the most part. And I even read about how a pet dog was tested and he also had a mild case of it. What was that about? And how in the world can some people have this virus and not get any symptoms at all but still be able to give it to someone else. It's all puzzling, but we have to be prepared for it anyway, and that's the hard part. 
I think we all need to be a little philosophical. Do what we can. Pray that it'll be enough. Love our kids and have faith that we will all get through this. I believe we will. And here's a bit of good news. Last week I told you about a company in Israel um, that said it was about weeks away from possibly having a vaccine for the COVID-19 virus. And they think they are right on the cusp of success. A vaccine for COVID-19. Now, if you don't remember or if you didn't listen last week, here's the story. It's, it's interesting, really. A team of Israeli scientists who think they're on the verge of creating the first vaccine against COVID-19 virus, they think they may be able to come up with it very soon, in a matter of weeks. They've been working in the Galilee Research Institute called MIGAL, and they have been working to develop a vaccine against a virus that causes bronchial disease in chickens. The vaccine has been proven effective in preclinical trials at the Veterinary Institute, but here's the interesting part. They weren't looking for a vaccine for humans. Miguel's biotechnology group leader, Dr. Chen Katz, he explained it this way. He said, our basic concept was to develop the technology and not specifically a vaccine for this kind or that kind of virus, unquote. The scientific framework, he explained, is based on a new protein expression vector which causes the body to form antibodies against the virus. So they were working on this, this, this um, vaccine for chickens, for poultry. And in the process, they demonstrated that the oral vaccine induces high levels of specific antibodies. But what does that have to do with COVID-19 and how did they get there so fast? Dr. Katz said, let's call it pure luck. We decided to choose coronavirus as a model for our system, just as a proof of concept. But after they sequenced the DNA of the novel coronavirus, the COVID-19, they found that the poultry coronavirus is genetically similar to the human one and that it uses the same infection mechanism. And that means that the chances of achieving a human vaccine in a very short period of time based on their work, is highly possible. He said, quote, We are in the middle of the process of adjusting the system to the new sequence, and hopefully in a few weeks we will have the vaccine in our hands. If it all works out, we would have the vaccine to prevent the coronavirus. Unquote. The group is currently in discussion with potential partners who could help them through the regulatory process and get the vaccine into production. And that brings me to the next part. This is the kind of opportunity that could flourish with a partnership. And I suggested last week that partnerships between companies with complementary research could push the research much faster and find a solution sooner. Good partnerships, big solutions. I also pointed out last week that if Miguel is successful in completing their research the way they hope they will, the Israeli government 
is ready to fast track the trials so that if trials are successful, the production of the vaccine can also be done quickly. The development of vaccines and medical treatments takes time and is very expensive. America could follow Israel's lead and cut some of the red tape so that the development of new drugs and vaccines would not have to take years and they wouldn't have to cost millions of dollars. In any case, there are several new international partnerships that are developing in order to find the cure for the COVID-19 and the vaccine to prevent it. Geovax, a U.S.-based pharmaceutical company, and Bravovax, a China-based pharmaceutical company, are planning to partner to develop a coronavirus cure in the form of a vaccine based on an existing Geovax product. IBO and CC Farming have formed another partnership to develop a plant-derived coronavirus vaccine based on IBO's fast farming system. That was used for producing antibodies for Ebola and dengue fever viruses. Two other companies, Taxis and Evivax, have also formed a partnership for a coronavirus cure. There's a lot going on, and there's a lot of reason for hope. It is my opinion that this kind of collaboration usually breeds new levels of energy and a profusion of new ideas that stimulate success. So we'll see. It's a race, and whoever wins it will be giving the world an enormous gift. And speaking of winning, let's spend a few minutes at least talking about the primaries that took place Tuesday, March 10th. You really need to stay up until the wee hours of the morning to get the results, but in the end, Sleepy Joe did very well indeed. Most important, he had a strong showing in Michigan with its 125 delegates. That was the big one. Primaries on Tuesday took place in Idaho, Michigan, Missouri, Mississippi, North Dakota, and Washington State. When the show was recorded, all the results were not in. But Biden won Mississippi... Missouri, and Michigan, the three M's. But even early on, it started to look bad for Bernie, and he looked as though he would come in a far second to Biden's huge victories. Throughout the primaries, Biden has done very well with older voters, while Sanders has captured the imagination of younger voters, except that the younger voters don't actually show up to vote. Their enthusiasm doesn't seem to carry over to actually getting themselves over to the polls. That's okay if you don't want a socialist for president. I'm good with that. Now one more quick story, and it takes me right back to the virus. My gosh, I'm getting tired of reporting about all this, but on the other hand, the stories really are interesting, and this one relates to terrorism as well. In Iran... What goes on among the mullahs and their tight circle is very secret. Yet it seems probable that the virus has infected at least several of the senior people in the inner circles. And it also seems to be true that what happens in Iran does not stay in Iran because 
several senior people from Hezbollah in Lebanon and Syria who recently visited Iranian officials are now sick themselves. The Hezbollah officials are now in special isolation because they were infected by the disease. Pardon me for saying this, but this is good news. These people are terrorists. And there's even a rumor that Hassan Nasrallah was himself infected and may also be sick from it. Although other stories say that he is in isolation in order to prevent him from contracting it. Well, that's all we have time for today. We have run out and I'm actually running late. So thank you for listening and God bless. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman and this has been the Friedman Report.